1: Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast, where I, Kimberly Wilson, Chartered Psychologist and Food Producer, take you through all things food and psychology. As well as looking at the way that food affects the structure and function of the brain, we'll also be thinking about the meaning of food in society and the role that it plays in people's lives. And my guest today is Gavin Knox. Gavin is a man of many pseudonyms. He has a baking blog and business as Mr. Mums and also answers to The Bearded Baker. In 2014, he won the Observer Food Monthly Award Reader's Recipe Prize for the Smoking Pig Liquor Brownies, a spiced chocolate brownie topped with dark chocolate dipped bacon. And yes, I will include a link to the recipe for you in the show notes on the website. Five years ago, Gavin and his husband adopted two children, siblings aged four and five. In this conversation, we talk about his experience of becoming a father, including the challenges and the triumphs, and how food is a way to build family traditions with his children. Just a quick note, usually when I'm asking someone about their food story in these breaking bread episodes, I'm in their kitchen. However, Gavin recently moved to Toronto, Canada, and the commute is a little bit tricky, so this conversation was conducted via Skype, and what we did was I baked his recipe in advance in my own kitchen so that we were still, if only virtually, breaking bread together. This also means that the sound might not be crystal clear in places. I think it's pretty good, and that's mostly because Sarah, who does the technical bits with the sound on the podcast, is a genius. But if it gets sketchy, please do be patient. It should only last for a second or two. And I really felt that it was important to get this conversation and this perspective out there. So I'm really grateful for your patience on that. And with that said, here's my conversation about brownies, identity and modern family life with Gavin Knox. When people come onto the podcast, and thank you very much for agreeing to be here today, or not here, but we'll go into that in a moment, I ask people to make something that is meaningful to them. So it doesn't have to represent their culture or the, or anything like that. It can just be the cheese on toast they have when they get home at the end of the day. But uh, tell me about the recipe that you have selected.
2: So the recipe I selected is a recipe called Smoking Pig Liquor Brownies,
3: Uh Um, and I know they sound extremely weird, (laughs) uh, but basically they're pretty typical
2: of my style of cooking, and they're based on an American kind of street fair, faint treat called a pig liquor, Mm -hmm. which is a rind of crispy bacon, which is crispy deep fried, and then dipped in chocolate, and then normally dipped in either salt or crushed up nuts. And then this is the inspiration that I used for these brownies. Um, So the brownies themselves are a chocolate and chili. Based brownie with bacon pieces mixed through it, and then
1: each are topped with a piece of this pig liquor, the chocolate dipped bacon. Mm-hmm. And so these are the American fairs where kind of you can get anything fried type things. That-
2: yeah, pretty much. If if it's still, it's going to be fried. So <laughs> you know, you're talking corn dogs. Um, yeah, basically anything is. You know, I'm sure there's some stalls there where anything can be can be deep fried and put on a stick.
1: And you said that this is um, representative of your style of cooking. What do you mean by that?
2: Um, I like to I like to play around with things and push the envelope on them with an ingredient, so that there's a slightly outside of the box way of thinking about it, um, slightly irrelevant, I- irreverent, excuse me, um, <laughs> way of thinking about it. You know, kind of tampering with traditions, but
1: that's me. I concur with that that's that's very similar to me I think um I like to think of myself as having having a healthy disregard for tradition why do you think or what is it do you do you think that that kind of style reflects in other parts of your life as well do you think that this revoking of tradition or trying to test things and be different also plays out in other parts of your life
2: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, as a gay man, you can't really get any more breaking <laughs> tradition than that. Um, you know, and add into the mix there as well a gay dad on top of that—it's kind of staring tradition in the face and flipping the bird, really. Why not say that?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's fine. <laughs> How do you feel that your lifestyle is a kind of flipping of tradition?
2: I think it's kind of a twofold aspect in that, you know, the societal norms of what a family should be, where you know, a mom, a dad, and the two point four children,
3: mm-hmm.
2: is one aspect of it. You know, we're a, we're a gay couple. We've been together quite a long time, and we've had our kids now for it will be five years this year. Mm -hmm. Um, so that kind of breaks the mould in the sense of, you know, that kind of clichéd and old-fashioned stereotypical view of gay men as just the party guys Um, but also it kind of I suppose it breaks the mould, some people in in the gay community as well in that we're not just settling for that, we've kind of gone and, you know sometimes we've had, people have the reaction that we've almost sold out, trying to be heteronormative, in the sense of you know, you're just trying to imitate what society accepts as a normal, happy couple.
3: Oh, really? Um, using, using the dreaded N-word in the sense of, you know, being heteronormative, normal. You're trying to have the 2.4 kids mm-hmm. eating cats and, you know, basically
2: almost be a, a separate wife almost. So mm. it's, it's kind of going in the face of tradition from both sides mm. of the
1: mirror. Really. And that's, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that because, you know, from... I guess from, from an outside view, my senses of the LGBT community really pushing for all, all kinds of equality across the spectrum, whether it's marriage equality, family equality, work, life, social life. Um, and of course, you know, I hear what you're saying, that it's not everyone, but it's I suppose it's news to me that there might be some sense in which having children, for some members of the LGBT community, having children is... What straight couples do, and it's not for for the LGBT community.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's
2: it's almost like you know the the individuals or the, the instances where this happen are they're trying to cling on to what makes them different in in the pursuit of trying to actually pursue that equality. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that doesn't really make sense, but it, it's almost like a, a bizarre paradox.
1: Mm-hmm. And how did you and your husband kind of reconcile that? I mean, did you, were you surprised? Did you laugh it off? Did you have discussions about it? How did you make sense of those different responses to your choice to have children?
2: Uh, Well, we had discussions about it, but to be honest, I think both of us now, we've, you know, we're, you know, in our forties and our opinion on things is, well, if that's your take on life that's exactly what it is it's your take on life this is ours we're happy doing what we're doing this is what we wanted to do and we kind of don't need to be quantified Uh by other people's opinions on whether we're doing the right or the wrong thing you're always going to have an opinion from somebody else who's different to yours and who doesn't quite get what you're doing
3: or doesn't quite get you know your aspect and your take on it Mm -hmm. you know kind of i guess kind
2: of similar to to the way i bake. Some people don't quite <laughs> get why I use those flavour combinations,
1: but you know, I do it because that's my thing. The UBU, yeah? Yeah. Did you get any of that from the straight community, or was that a different.
2: It's slightly different in the sense that the. Because the, the straight community is, I suppose, more prevalent, the response there has mostly been, on the whole, a sense of admiration. Which is a bit like, oh my god, you're adopting kids. That's wonderful. You know, you're great. You're fantastic. Which <laughs> the first few times you do, end up going, okay, thanks for saying that. And then you end up thinking, well, you know, that's not the only reason we've done this. You know, it wasn't just to be martyrs to the cause or be saints. We actually had a purpose in that. We wanted a family. That's mm-hmm. why we did it. But there, sometimes, and I probably spot this and see this a bit more than my husband, um, because I'm the, I would be the stay at home dad with the kids, be around them or outside. There is almost an underlying current of, God, how would I say? Maybe sidying in the sense of, okay, you're a dad, you're not doing it
3: the right way, and Ah. surprisingly, it comes mostly from mums. Because it's almost like they feel they have the right to comment and to have an opinion and to try and show you the ways.
2: Um, I remember distinctly there was a case where I was in, I was in. McDonald's with the
3: kids Um, they were off school and it was a treat and some woman actually came up to
2: me a complete stranger and started lecturing me on how I should be with my kids and how I should feed them
3: oh my
2: and it it, it left me a little bit flabbergasted in the sense of oh my god what do you
3: think gives you the right to actually do that to a complete stranger Mm. there are other kind of I suppose social nuances where you you get asked oh well you know when is mom going to be here? Or mm-hmm. what does your mom do in this situation? And they would be addressed to the kids and not to me. And it's, it, that's where I kind of have to step in and go,
2: actually, you know what? I, in this
3: case, would be the mom. Mm-hmm. But I found the dad, and there is another dad as well. And you can kind of see the look of, oh, I've, I've stepped over the line a
2: bit. And sometimes that's what it is. There is a look of genuine shock, um, which I suppose says a lot more about society itself rather mm-hmm. than the individual that there's almost this kind of automatic assumption that um, if there are kids, there will be a mom and a dad.
1: Sure, and, um, yeah. There, th- was
2: a, there were similar situations when we were actually moving over here to Toronto, coming through um, coming through passport control and immigration. My husband had come over here for us because he had started a job for us, and I was coming up with the kids and going through passport control. The, the question always out of, I think it was... Uh, it must be about three or
3: four. Of the the authorities there were. So where's mum then? Mm. And
2: that was where I ended up. Just kind of going. Well, dad is already in the country. i not the other dad? And do you see any papers? And it wasn't that they were quizzing for papers. It was just that automatic response. That automatic question.
1: The automatic assumption about what a family looks like.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and how you know
3: stereotypical image.
1: How have you? navigated that with your children because you know they came from a biological family with both their parents um, to uh, this new family which is headed by two men. How have you tried to prepare them for other people's ideas about what that's like?
2: Well that's actually quite topical at the moment because um, up until recently it was pretty much taken as writ with them so they they had two dads, big deal. You know that's just mm-hmm. another alternative family structure um, because we had certain books around the house that we used to read with them and give them, you know, just leave lying around for them to look at, which were about different family structures um, and the different ways they could be made up. But now that one of our kids is heading into teenage years mm-hmm. and the ones are starting to kick in, there's more influence externally coming in from mm-hmm. our friends, from TV, um, mm-hmm. from. Just from general environments around her as to this is what a more common family structure is
3: mm-hmm. and
2: that's led to them kind of questioning ours and being a bit embarrassed about it or reluctant to actually acknowledge it to their friends
3: yeah.
2: um, so we've gone down the route of actually you know leaving certain books around the household kids lgbt history books on kind of positive reinforcement of that family structure and the lgbt environments and communities because you know, with kids, you can try to it down their throats and sit them down and give them lectures, but after 10, 50 minutes, they're just going to zone out, whereas what we have found to be more productive and actually more long-term, it is just to treat it more as an everyday environment for them mm-hmm. and an everyday positive environment. Um, the other thing is that here in um, Canada at the moment, it's also Pride Month.
3: Mm-hmm. June these
2: Pride months, so there's a lot of activities and a lot of events going on around which aren't just spearheaded um, or sorry aren't just for the older gay community or the grown up gay community. There are there's also family pride events. We've actually got one this weekend that we're going to where it's it's just a lot more easy for the kids to get into and to accept and to just kind of go, Well you know what, it's it's not actually that unusual. You know, there's this whole playground full of kids and they've got, you know, two dads, two moms. They've, they've got two moms and a dad. You know, there, there's lots of different family structures there that they get to see on their terms, which for them is a lot easier for them to
1: accept. You adopted your children and you adopted quite older children. How old were they when you, when you adopted them? They
2: were four or five, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things doesn't actually sound that old, mm. but in the whole spectrum of the adoption process mm. if they are if they are termed as older kids um most people when you talk to them about adoption have the the cliched image of babies mm. and i think most people when they when they go into the adoption process the um the usual kind of
3: parameters that they work to are babies up to about 18 months so yeah ours mm. were termed
2: older kids at four and five and to add into the mix again they were there were a couple, so we adopted mm. them together. Which for them kind of again in the adoption process the odds were stacked against because as I said, most people go into it looking for a baby up mm-hmm. to eighteen months and just the one. Um, mm-hmm. so we we decided to go for yeah older kids and a couple and that's something we decided from the
1: outset. And why is that? Why for us it was we
2: wanted to I suppose you could take the look on it that it was being somewhat selfish and that we wanted to have as much engagement with the kids as soon as possible. Um, so they would, we, could, we would be able to recognize some of their characters in an individual straight away.
1: Exactly. Um,
2: but also on the kind of, I suppose, the logistical side of things, there's a rather kind of interesting Catch-22 with adopted kids. That's the earlier you get them. There's less question. About emotional difficulties
3: because mm. you can form
2: the attachments quicker mm-hmm. but there's more of a question about the developmental because of course they're still babies the, the brain and everything else hasn't finished developed so you don't know if there's any damage there from um,
3: from when they were younger with with the birth family mm-hmm. but the cast 22 is with older kids there's less um, <laughs> developmental issues because they're older
2: things have developed and it's more apparent but you have more emotional work to do in trying to form those attachment bonds and trying to, in essence, rewire
1: their Mm. their emotions. Yeah, and I think that's a very poignant point to make because as a psychologist, I know that some of the reasons that adoptions of older children don't work is because there's a real difficulty for the parents in trying to, A, adapt to the child, but also for the children to especially if they come from difficult backgrounds, which presumably most of them have, for the children to try to adapt into this new family, into this new dynamic, into different relationships and different qualities of relationships, as well as mourning the loss of their birth family, whatever happened in those circumstances. How prepared did you and your husband feel for that? How was that experience? To be
2: honest, I don't think... Uh that's particularly to adoptive parents in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, parenthood is gonna be a steep learning curve. The whole grief process, as I, as I've come to call it, is, you know, something you you can't really prepare for because every kid and everyone is individual themselves. So it's how they handle them. Some kids will just kind of, you know, put it to the back of their head and go, No, everything's fine, everything's mm-hmm. okay, there's no problems. Other kids will be much more hard on their sleeves about it. Be very apparent what they're feeling, what they're doing. But I think for for me in particular, and me going through adoption processes, and then you know coming out the other side as an adopted parent, there's also what I've come to realize is it's not just, I suppose, a grieving process on the part of the kids. It's also your own grieving process because you go into the adoption process with this picture-perfect idea of what your what your new kids are going to be like. You know, and how you're going to have, you know, these great bonding moments and do this and go to this museum or go to this park and do this this way. But of course, when
3: they arrive, they're, you know, they're a completely other individual. Mm. And you have to kind of accept that and kind of
2: park the the whole picture-perfect notion and go, well, you know, it's not really like that. Um, And that's in no way dismissing the kids in Mm. in these scenarios. It's it's a learning curve and not just in the sense of you know all of a sudden you have these children and you're going oh my god what do i do it's, it's kind of things that kick in bit by bit and um, some days rather than other days and yeah it's, it's also a case of I well suppose getting used to the whole fact that all of a sudden you
3: know in our case we have two other individuals that we have to factor into our lives mm-hmm. we can't just do as our routine was before or
2: we can't do things at the drop of a hat, so we have to kind of plan things a bit more and take into account whether things are suitable for them, whether they're not suitable for them, uh, whether they'd be interested. I mean, that's, that's a whole minefield there, you know, trying to retain their interest
1: longer than <laughs> half an hour. not <laughs> two bored kids and then the squabbling
2: starts and then the big and it sits downhill
3: from there.
1: And how was your transition from... Uh, well not a single man but you know a man without children to very quickly having a family how did you find that transition?
2: Very steep learning curve <laughs> extremely um, you know for about the first month I my husband did still look at each other and kind of go oh my god we're dads what have we done um, and yeah, it, it, it's all because you can't really quantify and say that you know. Oh, it was one day you know, I was in a couple and it was just two, and then the next day there was four of us and it was all fine. You learn things bit by bit, um, and you have to learn them fast. You have to pick up on, as I said, these these new individuals' quirks and their idiosyncrasies and what they're about, and um, there is a whole period which lasts quite a long time, of almost second-guessing yourself, where you're left wondering, you know, are they behaving like this because they're kids, and because they're this age, and this is what a kid this age does, or is it a sign of some underlying issue? Is this the nice iceberg that's going to come out? But for us now, as I said, we've had the kids for five years. We went through that phase, and my advice to anyone who is in that position, adoptive or otherwise, is to kind of abandon the whole... Process of reading, you know, this book, that book, looking at this study, checking this chat forum, and just do what you feel is right.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, you you're a parent, you're a sensible grown-up person, or at least I would hope you are. Um, and if it's not right in your gut, then it's generally not right for you
3: as a family unit.
1: And I think you make a really important point about the giving up of of fantasy about the idealistic idea of, of how anything's going to be and I think that counts for well not just parents I think it counts for, I was going to say it counts for parents adoptive parents biological parents yeah. but I think it also applies in in daily life as well that we can hold on to these idealized views of how things are going to be and when they don't it can co- create a lot of pain and distress if we're still holding on to the idealised image and if we can't really sit down and face the reality of how the situation is.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean you you have to kind of you know, for as we're kind of bordering on there saying go through the whole griefing process and then lay it rest. the longer you try and hold on to it and you know, try actually set it in motion, the more frustrating it is. And especially in the case with You know, in our case, with adopted kids, if that were the scenario, I would end up spending most of my time trying to achieve something that just can't be achieved and miss everything else that's going on around me. You know, before I know it, the kids would be grown up and out the door. And I'd kind of be sat there wondering, well, A, how did that happen so quick? And B,
3: I still haven't really achieved anything.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods Thinking about
1: that transition that your children made from their original family and then presumably they were in in care, in the care system for a little while before you met them and before they became your children, how important for you was it to put some traditions in place to kind of help them to understand that this was now their family, that they belonged here?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were quite lucky in the sense that they didn't have that many foster placements before they arrived with us. They don't have two,
3: which is quite low on mm. the, the adoption system. It is. Um, but for us, both of us, as a couple, before we became adopted parents, had strong traditions, um,
2: even down to just the frivolous things like Eurovision. Um, we <laughs> would always have a Eurovision project with friends over. Christmas is huge in our house. Um, <laughs> it's not just a week of Christmas. It's a month long Christmas. Although we we have actually started, sometimes shifted it in November in order to facilitate friends visiting. But yeah, it's not, placing stuff like that in the home for us isn't just about, you know, establishing a tradition. It also has the, the comfort aspect for the kids, especially coming from care. You know, one of the things we learned quickly about it was having those traditions and anchor points in place and also having the boundaries in place, because even though it might sound constraining and... A bit rigorous for the kids it actually gives them that sense of comfort in that mm. this is where i belong this is my area yeah. um and the stuff like as i said tr- the tradition of christmas is really important to the house and the kids now know that and they will come to us and say oh it's december the first are we going to turn on the christmas lights and then mm. it's followed by are we going to do the christmas cookies how are we going to decorate the christmas cookies so even though I suppose, from a grown-up point of view, it might seem like the little things, for them, they are these, you know, they're they're the steady building blocks that they can actually hold on to, especially given their their start in life.
1: Well, I completely agree. And those, the reliability and stability is what creates trust, isn't it? it? That we learn to trust people, not from what they say, but from the consistency of their actions. And so those traditions will be embedding I think, I'm, I'm certain, in your children. And um, it was nice to hear that the there are Christmas cookies. Is food part of the tradition in your family? Do you cook together?
2: Now that the kids are getting a bit older, they're starting to actually help out more in the kitchen.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because, of course, there was this whole period of a, well, do I let them in the kitchen? Because there's, there's a hot stove, there's an oven, there's know a kitchen aid blade worrying around mm-hmm. and it's not so much a case that they would cook stuff by themselves with me watching I'd actually get them to help out on certain aspects um one of the first things I've
3: started making with them is just simple as bread mm-hmm. um, and
2: the amount of the amount of joy they actually get out of that is you know maybe it's just me being old and cynical <laughs> to me it's kind of like wow I didn't realize that meant that much to you mm. um and, you know, there's none of this KitchenAid nonsense. We don't use a dough hook. You get in there, you start kneading. You knead for 10 minutes, which at the start was a little bit hard because, of course, after three minutes, it's a bit like, no, my arms are sore. It's
1: quite of tiring, started. yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but that's where, I suppose, for me, I handle that in the sense of, well, okay, you can stop now, but it won't work out right. Mm-hmm. You know, you won't get a proper loaf of bread. Do you still want to stop? And the first time there were a stop, and I was going, "Okay, fine, we'll see what happens." So we would bake it, and of course, it wouldn't turn out right. Mm-hmm. So it, it it also kind of serves that aspect of, I suppose, teaching life lessons, mm-hmm. in the sense of um, you you get out of things what you put into them. But yeah, they're, they're, I've started baking with them and cooking with them a lot more, um, and for them, they get immense. Joy, pleasure, whatever word you want to use. I think out of that aspect of interaction with me on that front, because they know the kitchen is my domain, Mm -hmm. um, and for them being in the kitchen is interacting not only with the food, not only with the appliances, but also with me on my level.
3: Mm -hmm. And we Mm have we
2: developed that and understanding on that kind of level, that kind of camaraderie as well.
1: There are so many points in that uh, that. I want to pick up on an <laughs> a, 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 no i mean it's it's great that and the first one is how food and cooking and that shared experience in the kitchen can serve so many other functions than just purely getting something on a plate for dinner that within that there's the opportunity to teach patience to teach uh, process to teach concentration, all of those subtle soft skills that really do. uh, translate into other parts of life and it's not just about the function of it but everything that happens in between and of course on top of that they get that time with you which is not you know you being in in dad mode where go and clean up your room or do your homework and that kind of but in this shared act of I guess creation of of and also of play that we can do something together we have a shared endeavor and I think those sorts of things are enormously important it puts me also in mind of the the marshmallow experiment did you know that one um oh, no. it's a it's really a test of um how able a child is to delay gratification so they the original study got a group of i think four and five year olds and they put them in a classroom and they were instructed like they said hey here's a marshmallow um, i'm going to pop outside for a few minutes if you don't eat the marshmallow when i come back you'll get two and so, so this was really testing how able the children were to delay gratification. You know, if I wait, I'll get two marshmallows. Yeah. Um, if I eat it now, I'll just get one. And uh-huh. and this skill is really linked to lots of other um, qualities in, in older life. So people who are able to delay gratification tend to do better in school. They tend to get better jobs. They tend to have higher achievement because they're able to work towards a goal. Um, and, and, there are there's lots of thinking about how we can teach that to children and certainly i think i think baking and baking bread is almost a perfect one because there's a lot of waiting around there's a, yeah, you know, there's,
2: waiting, and watching the, the proverbial you know boiling kettle
1: if you like yeah no i think that's um,
2: but yeah i mean that, that's particularly working good in our case because one of our kids does have a little bit of an issue with kind of you know sticking with things for the long run until it comes to fruition but again it's, it's one of those aspects where you think, well, are they like that because just because they're a kid or are they like that because they have a problem with delaying gratification? Mm. You know, it's, it's kind of like they, they just want to skip all the,
3: the bits in between and get to the end. And gradually through the whole making process and the waving around and the proving and even the you know,
2: 20, 30 minutes that's in the oven,
3: mm-hmm. we've seen that that's, that kind of attention
2: span, if you like, has been lengthened and been drawn out a bit more. So that element of patience has actually come in a lot more, which is a really great thing
1: to see. You're Irish by heritage and uh-huh. there was the gay marriage referendum in two thousand fifteen and now Ireland is set to have its first gay immigrant president, sure. which is yeah. incredible. So what are your thoughts on on what's happening in that in the broader landscape.
2: Um, I mean I'll start with the Ireland thing Mm. I find it amazing one of the reasons I actually left Ireland is at the time when at the the age I was at I just kind of thought that there wasn't going to be I I would never get the life I wanted so I wouldn't get to marry somebody or I certainly wouldn't get to have kids Mm. there and it's quite a turnaround to see that A, Ireland has become a country who by
3: public vote has taken on equal marriage rights. Um, and now
2: that, you know, their their head politician, the Taoiseach, or basically equivalent of a prime minister, um, is going to be a gay man from mixed heritage
1: background. From what I see, you have this real split down the middle between great strides being made in Canada, in Ireland, across the world, in one direction. And but then, but then also on the other side, this increase or this greater highlighting of the targeting of gay men, for example, in Chechnya and um, the the countries across Africa and the Middle East and the West Indies where um, gay relationships are still punishable by either prison or or the death sentence. And it's it's an extraordinary state of of affairs that these two experiences can be going on side by side.
3: Yeah,
2: I I think what maybe um the strength of that kind of view and that opinion, because you are completely correct in that is, you know, nowadays we have social media, we have Mm. the internet. So there is a lot more coverage of things ad hoc. It's not just the press reporting on it. It's, you know, mobile phone footage or uh, people posting on their pages about it. But also I think in the sense that most of where the strides have been made in the LGBT community is in the slightly more developed world, but also in the sense of, I suppose, what's more accepted as the gay society. So your typical gay white males, there is still a lot of issues going on with trans people Mm -hmm. in the the LGBT community, with people of colour in the LGBT community. You know, the whole thing of Pulse is one factor of that. Um, It was a predominantly Latinx environment there. And then, as you said, you have areas like Chechnya where you have these reports coming out of of the camps and and you know, the people in power just don't seem to be doing anything about Mm -hmm. it. I think it's been addressed twice by two world politicians and that's, that's as far as it's gone. There there has been no kind of concrete action given on it or they haven't done anything about it. It's still kind of going on. And of course, there's been all the reports of, um,
3: again, being thrown off buildings Mm -hmm. because it's just not acceptable.
2: But well, that's all it seems to be. You, you have the general public and the LGBT community up in arms about it, saying something should be done, but it just doesn't seem to be anything being done. Um, there's There actually is a, an organization within Toronto here called um, Rainbow Railroad, who I think have the latest is that managed to kind of get three gay men out of touch Now yeah. What they do is they, they go in and basically rescue people in threatening areas and we'll take them out and set them up as best as possible. Um, so the on the whole and the broader spectrum, there is immense work to be done, I think, in areas like that. But it doesn't mean there isn't any work being done. So I realise that might be a slightly convoluted way of answering.
1: <laughs> no, but it's a, a complex question, you know, that and there's a sense of there's a sense of outrage but also I guess helplessness as well, certainly what I feel because I mean I watched um, a video of the Russian foreign minister just really ignoring this and talking it down and and taking quite a cold response to a reporter's questions about what the hell is going on and it's quite frightening and I think it leaves people feeling particularly powerless about what to do.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, you kind of, you left watching those videos or I can only imagine one is like the, the, the audience they're trying to yeah. get, you know, a somewhat concrete answer, a somewhat productive answer out of those people when all they seem to be doing is putting up these walls in front of you or just literally going, no, we're not going to answer that. You know, there the is that inherent sense of frustration and helplessness. You know, for me, it, it's twofold, I would have to say, in some respects, that it's not only for me as a gay man with a husband, but now as a gay dad, you know, I, there's, there's the fact of, well, what kind of world are my kids actually growing up into? Because you do, as cliche as it sounds, you do end up having that view in your head of the actions and the things that are going on now. We might feel some effects of them, but the long-term effects are what the generations after us will feel. And as a parent, whether you're a gay parent or a straight parent, that has a massive impact on your way of thinking and how you perceive things.
1: Does it frighten you?
2: I wouldn't say frightened. It bothers me. It's Mm -hmm. that kind of... It's that sort of Damocles kind of hanging over things, Mm -hmm. you know, as you mentioned there, you look in some areas and you see massive strides being made in equal rights, but then you look at others and it's almost the pendulum is swinging the opposite way and the opposite way into a very dark area. So it's, it's not something you can just kind of brush over and go, oh, well that's what's happening there. And I also think that's, that's an impact of what happened in Orlando with the, pulse shooting in that although it was, you know, miles away, someplace I've never been, you still end up feeling an effect of it.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
2: not just something you can't just go, oh, it's a news report and that's it. You know, carry on with your day. You do have it hanging over you. You do have it niggling in the back of your mind.
1: Except that we can't change the world in one podcast. Um, <laughs> but...
3: Who knows? Power Parenth- to <laughs> the people.
1: <laughs> what could... People do, whether that's just the person on, you know, just a lay person, the person on the street, that would improve things for for you or for, say, uh, gay parents. What do you think would be a, a valuable approach? Wow,
2: that's a, that's a question and <laughs> I Even if that's um,
1: an ideal <laughs> world scenario.
2: I think actually, and this is going to sound really, really corny. But I think you just love it a little bit more. So it's four letters, L O V E, and I don't mean that in the really corny sense of rushing out and throwing your arms around everybody and you know hugs, kisses, and kumbaya. I mean it in the sense that love isn't easy. You've got to learn to see past differences and
3: see past discrepancies and hang on in there. Um, It's a bit like you were saying earlier about the delayed gratification, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got to hang on in for the
2: the long journey and initially, you know, people meeting other people, other LGBT people in the world may not like them, may not like their lifestyles or their views or their opinions, but there's more to that person than those opinions and views. And it's actually pushing through that and saying, you know, I don't agree with you, I don't agree with your views, but... you go your way, i go mine and we'll still let's all do our thing and mm. get along. I think holding on to that animosity and letting it fester and grow and just kinda of be ever present is not gonna move things forward. It's not gonna be productive, both for our generation and you know, grown ups, but also for kids. You know, at the end of the day kids learn by imitation and they can only do what they see as being acceptable or what they see as society acceptable in
1: society so uh, patience and openness i think seems to be what you're saying no i think that's that's an important ask for for anyone and so that's exactly why i want to do this podcast it's about really using our shared experience of food and eating to understand individual perspectives that there's something else going on and that if we just put down our differences for a moment, even if it's just to hear somebody else's story, that we'll find aspects of ourselves in other people and and realise that we, and again, yes, it does sound a bit corny, but that we do have more in common.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was, just picking up on that whole thing, I was just saying, you know, food and putting down our differences. There was a really great um, TV ad run here by one of the major Canadian food stores, Uh, And basically the setting was in in an apartment block, lots of residences in there, and somebody decided to set up a table in the middle of the corridor and start eating there, and then one of the neighbours came out, they brought some food more neighbors came out Mm. but they were all from different backgrounds so you had canadians there you had french people there you had gay people there you had muslims there you had it was a complete mix of people but the whole point of them doing this ad and yes it is advertising at the end of the day was just to show that food and eating can actually bring people together you know once you park the differences and the issues at the door get in there and have some there I say some good grub (laughs) you know you'll be amazed what can actually happen and the you know the the wonders that can be on the table Mm -hmm. and not just in a food sense
1: yeah that's beautiful and um yes it's exactly that that irrespective of how different we might be in terms of background we all have to eat and um and that's why these episodes where I talk to people are, are called breaking bread and the idea is about coming together and sharing something over food You sent me your recipe in advance, right? I got it in advance. And because we can't be together in person, I have made your brownie and I have it sitting here in front of me. And I've been very, very patient because I didn't even taste the sample before we got (laughs) talking. So I'm going to give it a go now.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, that's very clever. I don't know. People aren't going to find me eating very interesting. But (laughs) it picks up on that the salted caramel theme doesn't it that lovely salty umami flavours yeah, mixed it, with the richness of it's the chocolate
2: a clash of sweet versus salty and which I think is more prevalent over now that I'm over here, over in this side of the border in North America than it is in the UK I think in the UK it just kind of took it as far as salted caramel and that was it really well it did when I was living there mm-hmm. um, but it got to a point where there was salted caramel with everything mm-hmm. But I think what I wanted to do there was just add in, you know, a different a different take on it in the sense that it's it's not just using caramel, but it is using that you know, the the whole Umami aspect versus the sweet of the chocolate. And like I said, it's a whole play on the I kind of imagine it coming from a trip to, as I said, one of these American carnivals or American Fates where you've got you know, the smokers and the barbecues there um, the chili cook-offs and just trying to mash that, all that up into the one thing and brownies for me you know I've got a hell of a sweet tooth <laughs> and that was a, a good place to start for me and yeah the, the interesting thing about the actual recipe itself was that when I originally tried it, it was the, the feedback from a couple of people was no, no this is not good you can't have bacon and sweet things it just doesn't work It's you know, forget about it
3: but I pursued it, carried on through it, experimented. I ate a lot <laughs> of them, you know, all, all in the course of research. Of course. Um,
2: And yeah, lo and behold, it basically became my calling card. or it, it was what I became kind of known for. And it's where, you know, I started my whole online social persona with. Um, so it was a big kind of feather in my cap, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word.
1: And not just that, not just that it tastes good and did well, but you won the Observer Food Monthly Reader's yes, Award way, for it. Yeah, way back when.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that was actually, I suppose for me as a, a home baker, it was the first time where, you know, I got recognition from complete strangers, but also complete strangers who were, you know,
3: in essence, gods
2: in the culinary <laughs> world because the whole process of the The Observer Food Awards is that your recipe is submitted, it's cooked in a test kitchen, and that's the first test, you know, whether it can actually be cooked and whether the people can follow your recipe but then it's also submitted to a a judging panel Um, and the year I was doing it, you had the likes of Nigel Slater, Jay Rayner Heston Blumenthal Uh, so to actually you know, sit down and
1: think, oh my god these people have tasted a recipe of mine Mm -hmm. and liked it
2: it is just like,
1: wow. Well, belated, but heartfelt congratulations <laughs> for you on that. No, that's great. and Thank you. I will, of course. Don't
2: um, worry. I don't, I'm, going, I'm going to write another story for years, so don't worry about
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll link it uh, in the show notes and also on the front page of the uh, webpage for this podcast. So people will be able to download that. They'll be able to go straight to the webpage and be able to make your smoking pig liquor brownies for themselves.
2: And if they really want to laugh, they can read the comments on the original Guardian page.
1: I might have to check those out for myself.
2: <laughs> yeah, them. yeah, just make sure you, you're not eating at the time. You might end up spitting it out.
1: <laughs> so I think we've kind of covered everything. <laughs> life, awesome. life, food,
3: life,
2: your death, experiences, the world.
1: LGBT rinds, brownies. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to say before we go? No. Okay, in that case, can I say thank you so much, Gavin, for being here. Anyone who wants to follow Gavin, I'll put the links to his social accounts and you can find him on the internets. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.